Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. It's great to have you back, Chris. It's been a while. Yeah, nice to be back. It has been a while. Too long, Kieran. I blame you. Yeah, that's season six getting in the way of our chats. We've got a lot to talk about today. So we're going to skip what you're reading for because essentially this episode is a big what you're reading for. It's you know not the second of our under the microscope sort of explorations of a, re of a really interesting, possibly, possibly important paper. It's called Research and Pedagogies for Early Math. It's by Clements, Liscano and Sarama. What is this paper about, Chris? So, well, the first thing to say is I've missed you giving me homework. And this, in, in, in the best way possible, really felt like being given homework because I've not read a great deal around early maths pedagogy for a while now. And so it felt like a nice homecoming. And that's kind of what this paper is. It is a um, an exploration of the evidence base in the broadest sense relating to the teaching of early maths. I don't think at any point it really pins out exactly the age ranges it's talking about, though it does talk about you know young children, toddlers, etc. But I think reading between the lines, at least to my understanding, I'm thinking kind of zero to seven um, is the, the the age range roughly that they're talking about. Maybe you'll correct me on that one, Kieran. There's actually a line in it where they say they didn't have the space to talk about zero to two or three, I think, off the top of my head. So you're pretty much talking about preschool and and the early bits of school ah so there we go so we're talking more kind of you know, like uh, so did you say preschool and up so maybe like two three and upwards going up towards and thinking about the background of their work we're we're going into kind of six-year-olds seven-year-olds we think about their talk they talk about you know kindergarten here which is aligned with our year uh, in america is aligned with our year one but in short this paper yeah it's a broad exploration of the research into um early maths education what it says what it doesn't say some of the wider arguments um that uh, appear in this space and what better people to lead us through the a discussion of this evidence than clements and sarama though as you say they're joined by a third musketeer usually they operate as a pair if you think about their wonderful books and there were, and a lot of the other research they've done but there's a third here so um yeah um fascinated to, and looking forward to diving into it with you Kieran. nice yeah i mean they set up maths is important early maths is very important but there's no consensus of pedagogy and they're almost trying to i don't know prevent the maths wars from happening you know they've gone back in time and they're trying to they see a schism although probably yeah they probably can't stop it yeah no they've i think they've um they even mention at some point the phrase the science of maths don't they? As if they are kind of nodding to the increasing uh, relationship that's starting to be drawn between the science of reading movement and, you know, an equivalent for that for mathematics. But as you know better than anyone, the evidence base around mathematics is very different to the evidence base around um, literacy, especially early literacy. Yeah, I, I will never not be jealous <laughs> of, of the, the robust nature of that field. I mean, so we're going to pick out bits that we find interesting. I think the first thing that jumped out to me was that they define a difference between efficacy and effectiveness. Were you aware that there was a distinction 
possibly in the academic literature when those two terms are used? I have to admit, when that, I, I, was, I saw that and thought, hang on a minute, is this, have I been reading research papers for quite a while now and have just somehow missed this point? And I don't honestly know whether I have missed the point on this one and it's something um you know might be worth asking twitter about asking you know those who have been with you know real expertise that i don't have in research whether they've come across it because they define efficacy as relating to small scale um adds to, i think they use the phrase adds to business as usual effects that we see um whereas they say effectiveness oh this is a word that we might use or that we tend to use when we're talking about something larger scale or something that's been seen in a number of contexts and classrooms and while i think that maybe that is a useful distinction uh, and it might make it easier to talk about what we mean when we say that there's you know research that suggests a certain thing it's not a distinction that i've come across before same here. I mean, I use them interchangeably. <laughs> and certainly if I've ever written anything and I've chosen to use efficacy or effectiveness, there's no uh I haven't described any sort of size to the sample or to the the robustness of the research. I think it might be one worth looking out for in future. You know, if we ever spot the use of words like um efficacy and effectiveness, what uh is that correlation there? Because it's very likely, I mean, I think research papers are like crosswords. You know, there are rules that the authors have to follow when writing them, and possibly there are rules for the reader. I mean, one of the ones that I've sort of been talking about recently is the idea that Martin established that the philosophical position of variation theory was um, oh, phenomenography, which is all about perspectives and who's observing whose experiences and things. And he, so in, that, in this like 1976 paper, they established that it, the distinction between it and phenomenology, which is more general phenomena. Um, and so everything you read has to be interpreted through that lens or so, or so you have to interpret what the, what you read in, in respect to this is their viewpoint. This is their philosophical position. So the type of research you're going to find is going to be different if you have a more positivist lens you know you're not going to find rcts you're going to find small groups you're going to find people talking qualitatively about the experiences of others and what's you know no one ever says this is the best way to teach in variation theory here here's what we noticed here's what we saw you know so it's one of those things so i'm, I'm really interested to see if this is actually a a thing and i wonder if there's an extent to which you, like it can broaden out so that people can say, well, while that's the the lens with which variation theory, you know, it tends to be researched, that down the line someone says, oh, okay, and based on the kind of understanding that we've developed from that, now we can do a large scale, you know, randomized control trial. I mean, Neil will tell you lots of overlap in the research into cognitive load theory and the research into variation theory, but because they've got these two positions. They very rarely reference each other and things like that there. So it's interesting. I mean, I really, I, I bring it up because it's an example of having to know the rules, but they also outline the rules of the game and essentially their, their lens very early on. So they say, we ground our interpretations within our theory of hierarchical interactionalism, which is a synthesis of empiricist, nativist, and con especially constructivist theories. 
um, that emphasizes these three knowledge domains. So they're saying, before you read this paper, you need to understand what hierarchical interactionalism stands for, so to speak. Although I think earlier, in earlier literature, it's referred to as hierarchic interactionalism. What What, what is that in layman's terms, Chris? Uh, I'm going to ask you the same thing because I read this paper without that lens. So perhaps this is, I like to think maybe I'll be bringing a useful and quite naive perspective to the interpretation of this paper. Now I'm going to have to lean into your expertise on this one, Kieran. You're going to have to give the, like the layman's definition for <laughs> this very specific layman. Well, I think, I think you can describe it, Chris. I think it's just that um, the, the label is perhaps alien. And um, this is actually how they open learning trajectories in as much as learning trajectories are based on this hierarchical um, interactionalism. And so the three things you said that learning trajectories must have. Yeah, so the learning trajectories approach, well, it's interesting because I have read both their, um, the the kind of more accessible teacher version of the learning trajectories book and the one that kind of dives deeply into the evidence behind that book. And I've completely wiped from my memory the label hierarchical or hierarchic interactionalism but the learning trajectories approach that they um are associated with says that there are kind of like three components to a learning trajectories approach there is a um, a recognition and understanding of like a developmental progression that pupils go through with regards to something in particular there is a related um, educational goal and then kind of connected to those things is the obvious kind of part of it to teachers which is a teaching practice or activity that um that relates to those two things. So alert in short, a learning trajectories approach suggests that there is a, perhaps if I'm wrong here, a, a hierarchical progression through certain um, capability, mathematical capabilities, and that we need to be kind of aware of that and allow that to inform our teaching. Does that sound fair? Yeah, I think so. Cause they obviously they're very keen for pupils to be active in their learning. And so as they travel through that trajectory, because we know that some of that stuff happens naturally in the right circumstances. Um, but eventually, yeah, all those three things come together. So I, th I think you're, you're spot on. It's just, this is them saying, this is what we, this is the, the greater, I don't know, inverted commas, truth governing our interpretation of the research we read. So they're, you know, it's like whenever I do my manipulatives to chat and I start off by saying, I'm, you know, when I'm interpreting the research, probably somewhere close to post-positivism in terms of, I believe there's an objective reality, but I'm not sure we can measure it. And so they're doing, you know, that means that I'm interpreting in terms of sample size and, and scale and, and duration and how, um, you know, robust the research was in, in, in sort of terms of the scientific method, they're doing something similar. This is where we're starting from. We believe that this is, these are the necessary conditions. This is our philosophical or sort of, um, epistemological sort of positioning, um, and that's how we've interpreted this, you know, because they may come to different conclusions than we might. I find particularly interesting when people, including, and I've tried to do the same thing in bits of writing that I've done, where you say, up front, this is my particular lens or bias or position, and bear that in mind when you're reading. Because when I read other people doing this, what I inevitably find is that, well, yes, there's that particular kind of lens that you've applied to this or that particular frame, and you've asked us to bear that in mind. And then as you go through you know, the, the rest of the paper or the book or whatever it is, you can't help but find other areas where they've done that again, but in a different area. So they've 
you know, they, they've obviously interpreted something through a particular through a particular lens or with a particular position, but they haven't stated this one. You know, it's like if you're quite good, at the, uh, you know, you're quite well behaved and say, look, this is these are my assumptions. Now let's explore this. You almost make yourself a hostage to fortune because the reader's then looking for other assumptions. Maybe that's that's you know that's, that's a good thing for the reader. It helps you to kind of recognize where uh, an author's coming from, but it does also highlight other areas where maybe biases or preferences aren't so clearly stated. I think an example of that in this paper is that um, they, they there's, there's a part where they talk about um, the idea that what works depends on our goals. And that makes sense. You know, if you're trying to, you know, see whether something achieves a goal, you need to know in advance, well, what goals are you interested in? And they say, for example, that there is um, a difference in perhaps instrumental and relational goals to mathematics, where the first is about, you know, being able to do stuff. And the second is being able to understand stuff, to connect stuff together. Um, and they show a clear preference for the latter, um, I, I would say, which is, you know, partly based on the mathematics research, partly also based, I think, on their their take and one I probably share about, you know, the purposes of mathematics. What I would say is that they talk about, and I think we'll talk, we might mention this later, they talk about the dangers of certain dichotomies. And I think they do that here because quite often, you know, the an instrumental learning goal isn't just an instrumental learning goal. I want kids to be able to do X. It often directly supports or um, follows and buttresses a um, a relational learning goal. So, you know, you get kids to be able to do this thing and then through that we can explore, well, why does this thing work? So it sets up a bit of a dichotomy that perhaps isn't hugely helpful and perhaps tells us a little bit about their own views on maths education. Yeah, in my notes, I thought, is this, is this a, a straw man? Uh, but then a paragraph later, they're talking about this dich the dichotomy, you know, between play-based and direct instruction. You know, because essentially they're trying to reconcile these two polar extremes, you know, and I think that's why the position is important because, you know, they know they're going to get flack from both sides, essentially. And so, but yes, yeah, so that was really interesting because I was like, I don't, I don't know. And I, th I thought I was misinterpreting it because I thought right, that that's a dichotomy or that's a straw man. But here's a really, really eloquent part or piece on, on avoiding, uh, avoiding dichotomies and um, what was the there's a phrase in it oh yeah the issue of play versus intentional teaching is one of the most pernicious false dichotomies in early childhood that, that's probably my favorite line in the whole thing yeah you can see that they are as you say trying to bat off or are used to batting off critics um on both sides and what's fascinating is as part of that including what you've mentioned there in many ways it, they are really you can you can feel how conscious they've been in a lot of their language choices you know you can sense that these are people who have been through a thousand arguments you know with people who are coming at early maths education perhaps from um, more extreme points of view either side and yet there's still quite a few typos in there which is ironic so really careful with language with, with the choice of language in some ways and then the paper itself has a few bits and pieces which I mean, I guess that's often the case in research papers, but I'm always slightly surprised that stuff, you know, assume presumably gets past peer review with um, 
obvious typos. I mean, that's really interesting because you shared one and I'll check the same paragraph in my copy and it was different, I think. So I don't know. I don't think that's on them. I think it's perhaps as, as you put, you know, this is published what August, 2023. So. Yeah. Maybe there's an original. Yeah. I think it's a bit where they use the phrase unguided when they mean when they, when it's clear that they mean guided because of the, what what's mentioned in the sentence. Yeah. Yeah, which was a, a really unfortunate thing. But yeah, I, it wouldn't surprise me if I, you know, I'm looking at a slightly um, dated version that's actually been that has been updated since. Because yeah. I mean, we're going to transition into well, how does this help us in the in the classroom kind of thing? But one of those typo, or well, there's there's a bit where one of the it talks about unguided discovery being more effective than guided discovery. But one of the references is Paul Kirshner, and so because you've had a copy with unused and what it can't be it can't possibly be used twice in the in the context you saw it i don't i i was confused um i was like right is kirshner being used as a counter example um because it was about it was about the merits of, of direct instruction essentially and, and minimal guidance the sentence there is very much talking about i'm certain it's talking about the va- just knowing clements and sarama's positions more generally when they're saying, look, this thing is really good, it's much more likely they're going to be talking about guided, um, sorry, kind of guided play within mathematics. Um, and I guess that brings us on to kind of possibly the core of this paper that you mentioned a moment ago, this idea of um, direct instruction at one end of the spectrum. And I mean, small d, small i, so not the Engelmann direct instruction. So just kind of explicit instruction, perhaps whole class explicit instruction at one end of the spectrum and um, free play, no guidance uh, at the other end of the spectrum and their discussion of, you know, what's valuable, what, what, what's valuable across that spectrum, when it might be valuable and what's a useful way for teachers to think about this array of options so what were your kind of takes on that yeah i mean it very much was the case that it's not one or the other it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that and it's up to the teacher and we, we know how how skilled early years practitioners and, and key stage one practitioners are but this paper sort of outlines the reasons why you know it's a case of we need to be responsive to our pupils in the moment and that informs almost the how we move along the trajectory and we're using things like afl and we're um but also always having a clear learning intention in mind we know what our pupils don't know we know what we want them to know and so that's sort of transferring across their time in school if that makes sense so yeah it was a very much case of sometimes we'll need to instruct pupils Sometimes we'll need to set up situations in which they can get that really rich conversation and dialogue, but it's never always through play or always through instruction. It's a combination of lots of different things. And it almost leads to this idea that learning trajectories is the way teachers are more effective. And they say that teachers who understand learning trajectories are more effective based on those things. Um, you know, particularly um, AFL, um, responsive sort of instruction um, based on what the people show. So it's you know everything ties together to um to show us that we need to be basically aware of many many things many many options and then selecting the right one for the right job which makes sense but often gets lost in the discourse doesn't it yeah not not least because people have in some cases 
justifiable fears about the way that certain um, pedagogies might come to dominate in early years, one way or another. And you can see, we met, I mentioned earlier about them, and so did you, about the perhaps the, the arguments that they have or discussions that they have and the people that they perhaps have to spend their time, you know, gently disagreeing with around the research. And one line that kind of speaks to this is they said, even direct instruction can play an important role in a multidimensional pedagogical toolkit. And the fact that they had to use the word even at the start of that to say, look, even sitting kids down for five or 10 minutes and actually just explicitly teaching them an idea can be a part of your wider toolkit. Yeah, the fact they have to use the word even there strongly suggests that this is the sort of thing that they do perhaps get a little bit of pushback against. They do also, dare I say, um, talk about the scarcity with which pupils will make uh, will make meaning about specifically specifically about mathematical content, uh, concepts through free play. That's not to denigrate the value of free play in terms of you know laying the found the experiential foundations upon which maths is built, and they make this they're keen to make this point. But it is to say that like if you've got a mathematical concept in mind that you are keen for pupils to learn relying on their discovering it through free play is you know an unlikely way to lead to the kind of outcomes that you want um, which again is why they talk about this multi-dimensional pedagogical toolkit there's also a really good table where they look at some of the trajectories myths um so if anyone's thinking well how you know because they talk about big ideas and the connectedness of the different points in the trajectory you can't just the, the learning trajectory isn't, isn't a bullet list and you just work your way through. Okay, I've done supervising. Now I'm going to do, I don't know, the comparison of, of objects in small groups. You know, it's very much a case of everything feeds everything else, especially at this age. You know, you cannot practice, um, I don't know, you can't, you can't develop cardinality without also simultaneously developing one-to-one -one correspondence, you know? So any counting activity is going to involve all the different elements, those principles and things get there. And so... While your intention might be right, I really want them to understand that the, the cardinal value is the is the last last number they say, but everything else is connected, you know. And so I think that really stood out. I mean, my big takeaway was that lots of the pedagogy they reference because they go through like maybe small paragraphs on different bits of um, I don't know pedagogy that that are important. Um, it's similar stuff across all phases. You know, there's a big conversation about the appropriateness. I think how it's described is that there, you know, it will look different in a in you know nursery early years key, key stage one, but the underlying principles appear to be the same. You know, I think it just takes a whole lot more effort to engage with it and um, with pupils who are this young. But you know, lots of the things here, you know, lots of the the sources, you know, I think yeah. The fundamental principles seem to transfer across all of them, all of schooling, I think. I understand that the idea of learning trajectories as being one part of understanding how these principles work might be something that's quite tricky for um, colleagues who are new to this to kind of wrap their head around. I know I wasn't exactly sure that what made a trajectory a trajectory. I think a decent um, analogy is... If you ever go on like the NHS website or um, a similar website that talks about the uh, developmental trajectories or the, the, the 
average developmental trajectories relating to like a child's speech development. I've been looking into that kind of stuff quite a lot recently for, you know, literacy bits. And one of the things that they're keen to recognize here is that while there is a, a an average progression there, that doesn't mean that all pupils will, you know, go through these things in exactly that order or exactly the, the, the exactly the ages that are suggested there. But it does suggest a, a general sense of progression that we're likely to see. But it doesn't mean, that, oh, yeah, kids are at this stage or at they're at this stage and it's one or the other. It's the, the trajectory is there to give us a, a sense of understanding of generally how uh, uh, how a child progresses through certain things. And I think like the learning trajectories that they have for mathematical development are quite uh, quite similar to that. that. At least that's my way of understanding them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was developing stage zero, um, I, I was like, okay, in the literature, this sort of happens 18 months earlier when the conditions are right. But this is the last point we need to give pupils the opportunity to develop this before the rest of mathematics is restricted. You know, because if you can't count and if you can't identify missing missing bonds before you go into year one, say, the rest of the curriculum is going to be off limits. And so, yes, I think I think you're right, Chris. And that's kind of what I have in mind. It's like lots of this stuff. When people play board games, when people are spoken to from a very young age, they will see the mathematics in the in the world around them. But you've almost got to care as, as teachers. I'm always thinking, what opportunities can we give kids to develop this? if there's been a paucity in their formative years, although they're probably still in their formative years whenever they're in reception in year one, possibly. Lovely stuff. I mean, I guess a couple of other headlines that I I can't help but wanting to ask you directly about because this is a very much an area of um, expertise for you. They talk about manipulatives and they give certain principles for how they think manipulatives should be used. I mean, I might, it's okay if I, I'll briefly detail them, uh, the way that they describe them and you tell me you know does your kind of understanding of the research align with these are there slight differences so they talk about the importance of kind of five things really the first being the importance of modeling things that it's take with manipulatives which seems fairly obvious they talk about the value of appropriate play with manipulatives in particular saying that on one hand can be useful for pupils to um, experience them um, in certain contexts before using them, but we have to be careful that if they end up becoming, pupils end up understanding them as toys in, in effect, uh, that it can be difficult to then draw their attention back to the symbolic nature of these things. And there's a, 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 a famous experiment that they reference related to that. So modeling, appropriate play, they talk about, and this links to what I just said, the idea of that they must, the manipulatives must serve as symbols on some level for them to be um, doing the job that you want them to do. Um, they they really strongly stress the importance of moving away from manipulatives for a particular concept over time towards pictorial and kind of abstract representations if we are using them properly, i.e. they are a scaffold to understanding, not an eternal crutch. And they also talk about the value of digital manipulatives and how in certain circumstances they can be um, even more advantageous than kind of physical manipulatives. Um, what did you what do you take from those five principles? So I'll keep this brief because I think we should probably do an episode on this on its own because 
essentially this this section of the paper is almost like the follow-up to the paper we've discussed before. And anyone who's heard me talk recently about um, sort of evidence-informed approach to the use of manipulatives. Um, it was a paper called Concrete Computer Manipulatives, in which they sort of state the claim for the use of virtual manipulatives. And lots of the things they mentioned in this, you can see direct correlation in, in the previous paper. Like there's significant time spent talking about transfer and how the more salient the resource, the more difficult transfer is. And so obviously that feeds into the idea that we need to we need to transfer at some point away from this. And so it's, this principle is almost, here's all this stuff previously that we've read and we've talked about because they don't have the space to reference all that stuff again. This is the principle you need to take away from. And actually, I think we should do, we should look at the the three principles that I devised based on reading that paper and then all the sources in that paper and how that correlates with, with this paper. But I think if anyone's interested, read just in the manipulatives, read the concrete computer man, uh, manipulatives paper. Um, I think I'll, I'll try and link it, it underneath this episode on, on Twitter and then read the manipulatives section because the two complement each other really, really well. And I think they, they had limited space in terms of what they could uh, what they could see or what they could say. Now, as always, Chris, you told me, oh, I don't think we're going to have enough for an episode here, but actually we've got enough for several more um, because we do you mind if we put a pin and then return to this? Not at all. Um, yeah, I'm more than happy to continue the conversation. So yeah, 150 episodes and... Uh, true to form, we have given people uh, you know, what they want, a really nerdy, in-depth analysis of a paper that uh, they probably didn't realize they needed to read. You know, So what, what better way to celebrate the uh, you know, 150 not out with, uh, with, yeah, with this chat and really looking forward to diving in. I think next in the next one, we'll go into manipulatives, but also some of the areas that we didn't feel qualified to... Uh, to discuss as much i think oh yeah and, and there's so much uh as well that perhaps we are able to discuss as well so they talk about um the importance of dialogue examples and non-examples um yeah plenty still to chat about i look forward to it fantastic all set to do is say thank you very much for joining me chris always a pleasure and everyone at home until next time thanks for listening <laughs>